What's up, everyone? Welcome to the latest episode of Note to Scene. This week, we got news from Bring Me the Horizon, The Venue, Chain Reaction, T-Mills, pop-punk band Girlfriends, a radio rundown, and part one of our deep dive on how Bring Me the Horizon became the scene's biggest band. You can listen to the official Note to Scene radio show over at 94.3 The X in Colorado every Saturday night from 8 to 10 p.m. local time. If you want to check it out, you're not in the area, you can download the station's app. Just search 94.3 The X in the app store and tune in this Saturday. As always, you can listen to the songs mentioned during this episode on the Note to Scene Spotify playlist. And if you have any comments, questions, or requests for deep dives, email me at notetoscene at gmail.com. All right, let's get started. So since the deep dive today is only going to cover the first half of Bring Me's career, and we won't get to the new stuff until next week, I wanted to cover their latest single in the news. So they dropped a new song called Teardrops last Friday in anticipation of their new EP, Post-Human Survival Horror, which comes out this Friday. I ain't gonna lie, this has felt like the most mid-single we've gotten from them post-ammo. It's not bad, it's definitely coherent BMTH, but it just feels like a dumbed-down version of the electronic formula that they've been pushing. Like, this was almost a throwaway demo version of Throne from That's the Spirit. It's obvious they're not going the alt-radio pop focus route and going full rock, and I'm all fine with writing bare-bones songs, go for it, get those hits but this certainly isn't strong enough to carry album promo. That being said, it has streamed pretty well out of the gates. The video broke 1.2 million views in the first 24 hours, and it debuted at 106 on Spotify's worldwide top daily streams chart with just over a million streams in the first day. Only a fraction of that came from the US though, with just over 256,000, so that puts into perspective where people are listening from. So the AP comes out this Friday, it has nine songs, physical copies aren't being released until January, so from my understanding, the only things that will count to first week are digital download cards, digital store purchases like iTunes and Amazon, and streams. So we'll see. I really have no idea what to expect first week-wise, especially during the pandemic. In other news, a pretty heartwarming story for the scene this week. Chain Reaction announced that it was closing its doors due to not being able to survive the pandemic, and various bands from the scene rallied to come up with ways to raise money to save the venue. If you don't know, Chain Reaction is an iconic scene venue in California. I cannot tell you how many YouTube videos of bands performing here I watched growing up. I remember being in high school in some shitty, shitty band. We had no idea what we were doing, but I wanted to tour so bad just so I could play there. Stick to Your Guns, Terror, Knocked Loose, Counterparts, Year of the Knife, The Casey Strain, Brian Fallon from the Gaslight Anthem, 18 Visions, Throwdown, even fucking Avenged Sevenfold, and I just saw today Thrice launched a t-shirt to raise funds. All of these bands came together to save this venue, and it warmed my heart that the scene could still come together like that and create positive change. You can find ways to help Chain Reaction yourself on their website. In other news, Team Mills pop punk band Girlfriends released their debut album last Friday on Big Noise. It's a great modern pop punk album, in the vein of MGK's new album, but also easily exists in its own lane. Like if MGK took from Blink, then Mills took from 
from Angels and Airwaves. I hear Tom all over this album and in the best way possible. I've been talking with their team to try and figure out what their vision is for the album now that it's out, just to see if they plan on making a full radio push and what their streaming strategy is, because these songs are absolutely primed to break out. They just need to have the right push. I haven't heard back on any specific details, but definitely keep an eye on this band. I mean, between Mills, MGK, and this Mod Sun shit that's coming out, this new wave of pop punk with some actual real money behind it might be gaining even more momentum. We'll see. On to this week's radio rundown. Over at Top 40, MGK and Black Bears, my ex's best friend, continues to gain ground, climbs two spots to 32. At Alternative Radio, All Time Low are still number one, but MGK's Bloody Valentine has dropped to number four and begun its plummet off the chart. All Time Low has officially blocked MGK from a number one. What a run this has been for ATL, and honestly, what a snub for MGK. I don't know how, but They Found Me is up to number eight. Definitely expect this song to keep rising. It's up over 14.5% in spins from last week. I Prevail jumped two spots to number six this week over at Rock Radio. It's definitely going to break the top five. Asking Alexandria up to 19, while Bring Me the Horizons, Parasite Eve drops to number 20 and is down over 5% in plays. This is definitely a disappointment with that being the release's lead single. Looks like the highest it'll get is 17. Bad Omens break even at 24 but are down in plays. It's looking like this song has peaked, but I hope with the attention that it did get, the band and Sumerian fire back hard with another song prime for rock radio. Motionless and White's Killers cover is down to 35 this week. It's such a bummer because I stand by that this is a kick-ass cover. And just as expected, probably the biggest news for the radio rundown this week, Architect's new single, Animals, has officially been submitted to Rock Radio and is currently at 44. It's going to be super interesting to watch and see if this band can catch their first real momentum at radio with this one. They absolutely wrote this song for it. All right, on to this week's deep dive. Bring Me the Horizon has always felt separate from the rest of the scene. From Suicide Season on, they've never put out an album that sounded like anything any other band was doing at that time. Somehow, they've always managed to take the current scene soundscape trends and throw entirely new dynamics over the top, evolving from MySpace deathcore to proto-deathcore metalcore, orchestral metalcore, Linkin Park revival metalcore, and even more, now in 2020 culminating into a band that's truly in a league of their own. This week, in anticipation of their new EP, I'm going to do part one of our two-part deep dive on how Bring Me the Horizon has become the biggest band in the scene. I'm going to cover their formation in 2004 through their third album, There Is a Hell, Believe Me I've Seen It, There Is a Heaven, Let's Keep It a Secret. Next week, we'll cover the second half of their career, Sempaternal through Posthuman. But since I won't get to it until next week, and I think it's important to make people aware before we go through the band's entire history, Bring Me's frontman, Ali Sykes, was accused of domestic violence by his ex-wife, Hannah Snowden, in 2016. I'll unpack their relationship and the situation in next week's episode, but if you want to read information about it now, I've included links in the website article for this episode. Ali was also arrested and accused of assault in 2007, which I will be covering in this episode. Okay, 
So Bring Me the Horizon formed in 2004 with Ollie Sykes, Matt Nichols, Lee Malia, Curtis Ward, and Matt Keane. And yes, they did in fact get their name from the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie at the end when Johnny Depp says, now go, bring me that horizon. I actually dug up the interview where this info first came from. It was a Spin Magazine series called Name That Band, and Ollie also revealed that they almost went with the name this evidence in 8x10s instead of Bring Me the Horizon. He said, it may be the worst band name ever. It's good we didn't use it. So they released a demo EP pretty soon after they formed called Bedroom Sessions. It contained a handful of songs that were later re-recorded, but also included one track in particular that was never revised as far as I know called Shed Light. From what I've been able to dig up, I believe this is the very first song BMTH ever recorded. Take a listen. Obviously, it sounds like shit. I absolutely believe if they said that they actually recorded this in a bedroom. But soon after, they released their first official EP, This Is What The Edge Of Your Seat Was Made For, and signed to the UK label 30 Days Of Night Records. This and Count Your Blessings, which we'll get to in a few, follow pretty much every MySpace deathcore trope in the book. Blast beats, sweeps, layered death growls, classic pinch harmonic patterns that follow snare hits, breakdowns that never seem to stop, spoken word parts, and so on and so on. But they signed to Visible Noise Records after Edge of Your Seat. Apparently, it was a four-album deal in addition to re-releasing Edge of Your Seat. The extra promo from that re-release really helped put more eyes on the band back in the day. So apparently, and I haven't been able to find the issue that this was in, but in an issue of Rock Sound, the band confirmed they used to trick promoters into getting on tours around this time. Matt Keane and Ollie's mom, Carol, apparently served as the band's kind of de facto managers back then, and there was a Red Chord tour that they were going to play their local date for, but they had emailed the promoters on the run and said that they were opening the entire tour, so they ended up getting booked alongside the Red Chord for the whole thing. In another instance, Ollie supposedly started a fake email impersonating the vocalist of the band Johnny Truant, Oliver Mitchell, and contacted a promoter and requested that Bring Me Be On the entire tour. Again, it was supposedly in an issue of Rock Sound, and I don't have the physical copy of it, so take all of that with a grain of salt. But on October 30th, 2006, they released their debut album, Count Your Blessings. Much like Edge of Your Seat, this record is a very typical deathcore album. Very little innovation and very cookie cutter when it comes to the genre, especially during that era. So how did they drum up so much hype from it? Nobody talks about this, but it's very simple. They were poster boys, especially Ollie. They looked like their favorite bands were Fall Out Boy and Panic of the Disco, but they sounded heavy as fuck. That seeming antithesis between their look and their sound was very attractive during the impending Roar XD era the scene was entering into at that time. 
it gave scene kids something to latch onto that was missing for them from a band like the Black Dahlia Murder. I mean, Hot Topic could put Ollie Sykes on a poster in their front window to sell jeans. They couldn't do that with Trevor from Black Dahlia. Emo boys are just much easier to market to a wider audience than bearded cargo shorts wearing metal bros. And that's the other side of the coin. Metal bands hated Bring Me. There was a moment on the Count Your Blessings cycle when they replaced Bury Your Dead on a Kill Switch Engage European headlining tour because Bury Your Dead's vocalist had left the band mid-run. And supposedly Kill Switch's fans hated Bring Me so much that they threw shit at them on stage during their sets every night. And this really puts into perspective how much they were hated back then, because Kill Switch fans weren't true metalheads by any means. I remember one time I was at this metal biker bar in Brooklyn called Duff's and a Kill Switch song came on and all the Pantera and Slayer diehards at the bar acted like a Taylor Swift song was playing. So if Killswitch fans were a step down from Slayer stands and even they were shitting on Bring Me, you know they had it rough. But thanks to MySpace, they found their crowd and blew up online, even if they weren't necessarily finding that crowd while they were on tour. But the band was a mess back then. They were drinking to the point of it being a problem on multiple levels. One, they weren't a very tight band musically on the Blessing Cycle, super sloppy, but even then they were spinning that to their advantage. Not many people remember, but Bring Me The Horizon was also considered a party metal band at the beginning. On Ollie's 19th birthday, they played a club outside of Manchester and substituted everything on their rider that night for alcohol, got completely plastered, and played the show. Ollie ended up exposing himself on stage after someone pulled his pants down. And this info is all straight from the band's mouths thanks to an archived cover story on Alternative Press's shit show of a website that still hasn't been erased from the internet. But as we'll see in a bit, their party ethics became blatantly obvious on Suicide Season. But before the band had their first breakout moment, Ali was involved in a situation that landed him in the courtroom. On April 8th, 2007, Sykes reportedly invited a 26-year-old woman and her friend onto the band's tour bus while they were at Rock City in Nottingham. A reported employee from the venue gave the following statement to UK-based music web scene Drowned in Sound. They said, After the gig, two girls tried to get on the tour bus. Later on, the singer, Oliver Sykes, tried it on with one of the girls. When she said no, he called her a dyke and first pissed on her before him and the rest of the band threw her and her friend off the bus. Once off the bus, someone within the band threw an empty bottle of Jägermeister at the girl's head, resulting in this. The singer was arrested, and the band have been banned from Rock City. The police said they couldn't charge anybody because the girls couldn't say which member of the band threw the bottle. So at the time, Ali denied the allegations to their fullest extent. The band's label released this statement. As many of you will already have heard, there was an incident concerning the band on and around their tour bus in Nottingham in the early hours of Sunday morning, April 8th. As to be expected, in the age of the internet and web boards, numerous versions of the alleged incident have been posted online. Bring Me the Horizon and Visible Noise would like to clarify the situation. Ollie Sykes was arrested and will appear in court on Friday charged with allegedly urinating on a female fan inside the tour bus, which he strongly denies. 
Ali has not been charged, nor has ever been questioned or been under any suspicion of attacking the aforementioned female fan. The alleged incident is being dealt with by the relevant authorities currently, and a formal statement will be issued once Ali has attended his court appearance on Friday. So a photo of the alleged victim surfaced in Drowned in Sound's initial report, which showed her face covered in blood. But after appearing in court, all charges against Ali were dropped due to a lack of evidence. Here's the final statement from Visible Noise on that story. A charge of common assault against Bring Me the Horizon frontman Ali Sykes has been dropped by the Crown Prosecution Service on grounds of not enough evidence to provide a realistic prospect of conviction. The 20-year-old singer was charged with common assault on the 8th of April this year after a 26-year-old woman he met at Rock City, Nottingham, accused him of splashing urine on her dress while she was present on their tour bus. The band are currently in the USA, tearing up venues, three weeks into a 10-week tour. They are back in the UK for their headline tour, beginning on November 22nd. 2008 follows up with a European headline tour in January and a six-week USA headline in February and March. So, as we'll talk about in a minute, the band wrote a song on Suicide Season called No Need for Introductions, I've Read About Girls Like You on the Back of Toilet Doors where the only lyrics that Ali screams are, For people like you, there is no such thing as an early grave. You wanted to gut my dreams till I was empty and show everyone my remains. And after everything you put me through, I should have fucking pissed on you. Now, until I did research for this episode, I thought that was the end of the story, but I actually came across an AMA the band did on the music subreddit in 2015 where a fan asked, Heard you took a piss on a fan, Ollie. What's up with that? To which Ollie responded on the band's Reddit account, when you've gotta go, you've gotta go. So do with that information what you will. I'm just the messenger here. Following this came the band's first of multiple breakout moments, Suicide Season. The album was recorded during the first half of 2008 with producer Frederick Nordstrom, who is the guitarist of the metal band Dream Evil. Dude is considered one of the top melodic death metal and power metal producers in Sweden, having worked with bands like At The Gates, In Flames, Dark Tranquility, Opeth, and others. And that's how I want to start the dive on this album. I know it's a stretch, but in a way, I do compare it to My Chemical Romance's Black Parade in the way that it didn't fit the mold of what other bands in the scene were doing at that time. The Black Parade wasn't a pop-punk album, it wasn't a post-hardcore album, it was literally just a rock album. There are literally Aerosmith riffs on that record. And Suicide Season is similar in the way that no scene band was making a metalcore album like this in 2008. The scene was actually entering the electronicore, crabcore phase at that point, and Bring Me never touched any of that. Suicide Season is this proto-deathcore, metalcore monster that walks the line between the two perfectly. Ali's screams have incredible range from growls and fries to massive hooks with yelled vocals to these tastefully edited vocal chops and screws. I mean, sure, it's full of breakdowns and double pedal chug madness, but it's also full of songs where the math is completely wrong and they still drive them home with unforgettable moments. Take even just Chelsea Smile, for example. I mean, it's got a yelled hook that's void of sung melody, but it's backed by a riff that spells that melody out for the listener. 
listener. These vicious, blistering verses where Ollie alternates from fries to growls to yells, a breakdown that gives way to a seemingly completely out-of-place electronic interlude but somehow still feels right. And fun fact sidebar on that, it was actually made by the secret handshakes Louis Dubik. And it builds and actually keeps the listener's attention until it drops into this riff-heavy breakdown that made every scene kid lose their fucking mind. And then back to the hook to drive the song home. They did this all over this album and painted a picture of full-on mental spiral lyrically. On Chelsea, we see Ollie grapple with belief in God, and it was over the next two albums that we saw him formulate his thoughts on religion and faith in a higher power in general. He said on Chelsea, Repent, repent, the end is nigh. Repent, repent, we're all gonna die. Repent, repent, these secrets will kill us. So get on your knees and pray for forgiveness. We all carry these things inside that no one else can see. They hold us down like anchors. They drown us out at sea. I look up to the sky. There may be nothing there to see. But if I don't believe in him, why would he believe in me? On the title track, he talks about the death of his friend's friend and how it changed them. If only sorrow could build a staircase or tears could show the way, I would climb my way to heaven and bring him home again. I would do anything to bring him back to you, because if you got him back, I would get back the friend that I once knew. And on the other side of the coin, the band is still dealing with their own self-destructive ways on death breath and football season is over. On death breath, Ollie screams, the sun goes down, we come out, a different party in a different city. The sun comes up, we come down, we lived fast and died pretty. On Football, which features J.J. Peters from the Australia hardcore band D's Nuts, he says, The hardest part of today is a hangover. I got every person I need, and it's going to be one hell of a messy night. I can't even remember last night. I can't remember anything. And then in the bridge, he and J.J. scream together, Party till you pass out, drink till you're dead, dance all night till you can't feel your legs. On Diamonds Aren't Forever, Ollie goes to the other side of spirituality battle, saying, I can promise you one thing, death will take us all. I can promise you one thing, you will die alone. We're all going to hell, we may as well go out in style. Death is a promise, and your life is a fucking lie. Much like BMTH's career, Suicide Season is a roller coaster of emotions wrapped up in a deathcore metalcore bow that sent the band on a fast track to the top of the scene. I was actually able to dig up the press release of their signing announcement to Epitaph in 2008, and the label summed up the album perfectly. Suicide Season is the perfect soundtrack to a life spent on the edge where the rules don't apply and darkness rules. So even though the album was released on September 29th, 2008 in the UK through Visible Noise, didn't receive an official release in the States until that November when it started being distroed through Epitaph here in the US. After this, the band continued to tour their asses off. They did the 2009 Kerrang! Tour with Black Tide, Mindless Self-Indulgence, and others, and then the North American leg of the 2009 Taste the Chaos Tour with Thursday, Four Years Strong, Cancer Bats, and Pierce the Veil. It was during that tour that guitarist Curtis Ward left the band. There was this growing tension between him and the rest of the members. Apparently Ward didn't contribute much to the writing of Suicide Season, and he had tinnitus, which was worsening in the ear that he was able to hear out of as he was born deaf out of his his other ear. 
Ward actually went on to work on the automotive TV show Top Gear, and in 2016, he joined a new band called Counting Days. It's kind of funny because there are moments on their album Liberated Sounds that sound pretty similar to Suicide Season. But so after Ward, Jonah Weinhofen enters frame. At the time, Jonah was playing in Bleeding Through, and Bring Me knew him from when he played in I Killed the Prom Queen. He officially joined the band, and they just continued to tour their asses off. In November of 2009, they actually released a remixed version of Suicide Season, where they had various musicians, producers, and DJs remix every song on the album, and they even gave some songs multiple remixes. Probably the biggest track from the re-release was Tech One's remix of Sleep With One Eye Open, just because it had that ridiculous dubstep drop in it. There was also Skrillex, who remixed The Sadness Will Never End, Travi McCoy from Gym Class Heroes did Chelsea Smile, Clown from Slipknot also made his version of Sleep With One Eye Open, Lewis from The Secret Handshake did the title track, and so on and so on. This was the first notable scene remix album. After this, we saw Asking Alexandria do their own with Stepped Up and Scratched, and then it seemed like every band was releasing dubstep remixes as bonus tracks on their albums from 2010 to 2012. Shit, there are even official dubstep remixes of Mailing and Sunder Disaster songs from their fourth album. Since it's not a specific band, y'all should hit up Finn and see if he'll do a punk rock NBA video about the scene's dubstep moment, which we can also credit Emo's King Sonny Moore for. So probably the most notable thing that happened for Bring Me on the suicide season cycle was their crossover moment in America. As I mentioned before, the internet really helped them gain traction in a way that they just wouldn't have been able to otherwise due to a lot of other bands not taking them seriously. By July of 2009, the album had sold 15,000 units in the UK, but it had sold 20,000 in the States. This is where bands like Enter Shikari and Architects missed the mark. Those two bands can play massive caps in the UK, but only a fraction of those sizes here in America. If you're gonna catch crossover momentum, you gotta do it early on. Asking Alexandria made the US their focus super early on, and it paid off for them. Obviously, that's not the only way to be in a successful band, but it's what Bring Me did and why they have such a mammoth presence over here to this day. So Jonah is in the band, they're touring their asses off all over the place, and they begin the process for what would be their third full-length album, There Is A Hell, Believe Me I've Seen It, There Is A Heaven, Let's Keep It A Secret. The band recorded it over the course of three months in 2010, from March to June. They went with two producers, Frederick Nordstrom, who produced Suicide Season, and then Hendrik Oud, who is very well known in the Swedish metal scene. There is a Hell is easily one of the most underrated scene albums of the last decade. Don't get me wrong, this it was a huge moment for the band and crucial in their rise to number one, but historically, this record is unbelievably overlooked. The band took a heavy orchestral approach to this album, which scene metalcore had never really done before. Layered with soaring and dynamic electronics and multiple guest appearances from Lights, to me, this is Bring Me's second best album. They managed to keep their core fan base of scene kids happy with accessible songs while at the same time progressing their songwriting tenfold from Suicide Season. This is a dark album. It's a look into Ali's struggles with faith and mortality. On Suicide Season, we saw a semi-self-aware, self-destructive side of the band, and they deal with the personal consequences of that behavior on this album. Just on the first song, Crucify Me, it feels like Ali is battling for his own soul. He says, 
if we make it through the night, if we make it out alive, Lord, have mercy and pray for the dead. If you say that you can save me, don't hope to ever find me. And I fear I'm too far gone. Pray for the dead. And this continues throughout the entire record. It Never Ends deals with his inner turmoil. Fuck, which features John from You, Me at Six and Blessed with a Curse, are about the toxicity of his romantic relationships. Don't Go falls back into the guilt he feels for the things he's done in the past. We all have our horrors and our demons to fight, but how can I win when I'm paralyzed? They crawl up on my bed, wrap their fingers around my throat. Is this what I get for the choices that I made? God forgive me for all my sins. God forgive me for everything. On the surface, they're hyper-relatable lyrics to impressionable teens, which was their demographic, but underneath, I do think it's Ollie digging deep and being genuine with himself in a way that he's grappling with what's going on inside of him. There's a message in the physical edition of the CD in the album's inlay which says, We'd like to take this opportunity to thank every single person we love and friend we have made along the way of this amazing journey. If we could fit every name on this page, we would, but it's simply impossible. So we would like to thank every friend, all of our families, the crew who make our tours possible, our management and label who treat us like their children. You are all like family to us, and we couldn't have made it to this point without you guys. There's one person I would like to individually thank, as I feel that without her help, this album may not have ever seen its day. She helped and is helping me rid my demons and showing me the light. She taught me heaven and hell is within, not above or below. She inspired a whole new depth to the concept of this album and helped shape what it has become. Thank you, Sandra Brody. I've never tried overtly hard to find out who Sandra Brody is, but quick Google searches just bring up Tumblr and Reddit posts of fans asking the same question. If I had to guess, I assume it'd be some sort of counselor to Ollie, but it's obvious she had a significant impact on him and the final outcome of this album. There Is a Hell had fairly successful debuts in multiple countries. It debuted at number 17 with 20,000 units first week in the US, number 13 in the UK with 8,900, and actually number one in Australia where it set the record at the time for the lowest amount of units ever for a number one album with 3,600. But There Is a Hell was a statement from Bring Me the Horizon. It was critically acclaimed and grew their band. They walked the line perfectly from the suicide season cycle hype, giving critics and fans alike something to latch onto. But what nobody saw coming was that this was only an assist to what they would score during their next album and eventually the second half of their career. This was a turning point for a band that would eventually become the biggest in the scene. But we'll get to that chapter of Bring Me's career next week during part two of our deep dive. Things ramp up quick for the band post There Is A Hell, so buckle up. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any requests for deep dives, email me at notetoseen at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Note to Scene on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you enjoy the show, please drop a review on iTunes. I'd appreciate it very much. Until next week, stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon. 